This is Ozarks at Large for Friday, July 1st, 2022. Thanks for being with us. Thanks also to everybody who contributed to KUAF during our June end of fiscal year fundraiser. Here's someone who's going to contribute to our knowledge of what's going on in the area. That is Michael Tilly with Talk Business and Politics. Michael, welcome. Well, thanks for having me. I'm that's very generous that I could contribute to anyone's knowledge, but we'll see what we can do. Well, let's start with a major contribution of sorts uh, that's being made for USA Truck. They look like they're going to be purchased by a, a German-based company. Yeah, it's, well, I mean, it's a major contribution if you're a share, shareholder. Right. Um, yeah, so DB Schinker, uh, a company out of Essen, Germany, um, is buying USA Truck. Uh, based out of Van Buren, uh, it's expected. It's not closed yet. It's a $435 million deal. It's expected um, to close uh, here in a quarter or two. Um, but it's it's not a it's not a surprise um, that this company, the um, Schinker, had been talked about in terms of expanding um, into its North American, uh, expanding into North America. I'm a little surprised that USA Truck was part of that. Uh, at one time, when USA Truck shares were down around two, three, four, five dollars a share, it probably made more sense. But they've been—I think the shares are around fifteen when the deal was announced. It comes out to about a thirty-one, seventy-two dollar per share, so it's a great premium for the shareholders. Um, but and, and to kind of give a little bit of perspective, um, what this does. I think we've We've talked plenty now about the global supply chain, how and how a lot of these companies like USA Truck, ArcBest, JB Hunt—they're not just trucking companies anymore. They're logistics companies. They're um, you know freight brokerage companies. Kind of a one-stop shop if you need to get your widgets from here to there, and then need to get them dispersed to different warehouses. So instead of previously a company used to have to deal with several folks. Now you can just go to like ArcBest or whatever. Well, so DB Schinker is wanting to expand their capacity in that area. So they bought USA Truck, which um, makes sense. USA Truck had been on a roll. They'd had sec- seven uh, consecutive quarters of um, financial gains, um, as did a lot of companies during the pandemic supply chain snafu. And just to give an example of kind of the difference in the size of the company companies, Schinker last year had 21 billion in annual revenue, and USA Trucks had a record last year of 710 million. So, oh, quite a difference. Yes. Of, yeah, in the size of the companies. Do you think this will mean anything different for Van Buren, the River Valley, or Arkansas? Yeah, I think it's going to have an impact, uh, and not uh, not a good impact. I, I know a lot of times these companies will say, "Oh gosh, nothing's changing," and that's all. BS. It always changes. Um, and so I haven't had a call back from the USA truck folks. I probably won't. I wanted to talk to him about the future of the corporate headquarters there uh, because that will be, if it's diminished in any way, that will not be, you know, welcome news for the, for the metro economy and especially for Van Buren. You know, this one, this area once had five, you know, corporate headquarters. You had Superior Federal. It was bought out by RVS. Baldor was bought by ABB, another European country. Beverly was bought by San Francisco Investment Firm, and then properly dismantled, and then not properly 
um, quickly dismantled. Now USA Truck has been acquired. ArcVest is the only you know corporate company, uh, and by corporate I mean publicly held corporate. So ArcVest is the only one, only one remaining. And and let's not even think about what would happen if they sold, because that would be um, unpleasant. And I don't think they are. They're the I think in fact they're the ones that will be uh, acquiring. They're the company that will be acquiring. But yeah, I don't. I'm not optimistic about the impact, Kyle, on um, on that corporate headquarter presence over there in Van Buren. All right. Well, I imagine there are some city officials in Fort Smith that are optimistic about tax revenue up for the May report and up beyond what had been expected. Yeah, it was definitely up beyond what was expected. The May report, the revenue was one point, almost one point nine million, and it was up a little over eleven percent. Uh, compared to May of last year, that was a surprise because in the April report, the gain was up only 2%. So there was some thinking, well, maybe this is kind of settling out. Um, but but it didn't. came back in, like I said, almost double digit, a little over 11%. Um, and this is – and what we're talking about here is the city's share of the 1% countywide sales tax. And the reason we kind of monitor that is because that revenue goes in. Um, to the city's general fund, which helps pay for police, fire, uh, and other kind of essential city services. Uh, and through the first five reporting months of the year, that tax has generated $9.4 million, and that's up 11.4% compared to the same time in 2021. Now, obviously, Kyle, we know that inflation, you know, we're looking at 8 9% inflation rates. So um, you have to know that some of that increase is from, from that. Which also means what the city has to pay for its services is is inflated. So um, you can't just automatically say, "Well, that's just all free and clear money." Um, but at least it's going in that direction, and we'll see how much longer um, consumer strength um, remains. How, how much you know elasticity there is, as the economists say in that spending in the light of uh, higher food and higher fuel prices. There is a new jobless report for Arkansas. And if you look statewide, the eight largest areas in the state, the eight metro areas as defined by um, people who do this sort of thing, overall, all up. But when you start parsing the numbers, you see that job growth is really concentrated in just a few places. Yeah, just uh, in the three um areas in the three the state's three largest metro areas now that's not counting memphis west memphis because that would technically be the largest but most of that's in tennessee but of the largest that are predominantly in arkansas um, of the state's almost thirty-five thousand year-over-year job gains as of may 79 percent of that almost 80 percent of that came from central arkansas northwest arkansas and the fort smith metro area um, and of that, the Northwest Arkansas metro area accounted for 42% of that state total. So that gives you a sense of the rural-urban divide in Arkansas. Um, the Central Arkansas area added um, 10,500 jobs. Northwest Arkansas added uh, just almost 15,000 jobs, and the Fort Smith metro added uh, a little over 2,200 jobs. So. Um, but those three areas, um, like I said, accounted for a significant number of the job growth as of May. 
And of those eight metro areas, the last little detail is that uh, only three metro areas, Hot Springs, Central Arkansas, and Pine Bluff, have job numbers that are still below the pre-pandemic level of March 2020. So a pretty broad recovery from the pandemic, but the job growth is still pretty focused in those three metro areas. And... Well, that's great news for Northwest Arkansas, Central Arkansas, and the Fort Smith Metro. Um, it, you know, there are 75 counties in Arkansas, and we already know that there are some disparities between the more populated and least populated areas when it comes to things like health care and, and other matters. Yeah, look, I, I think I've been, uh, not, it's not just me, I think there are a lot of folks who for a decade or more now have been, um, not that we're trying to raise the alarm, just but just point out that, um this is not healthy overall for a state economy to have this kind of disparity. You would like to see a little bit more balance where the job growth comes from, but um, it's just, I've, you know, we see the politicians talk about we're growing jobs and they pat themselves on the back for growing jobs. And that's great. But um, we need a little bit more definition on, um, you know, what we're doing, because if we're not bringing everybody along, it's not as the ride's not as good. Finally, 2022 is an election year. It's not that far away in November. And you have a story about uh, a candidate for, I think it's House District 49. That's North Sebastian or North Fort Smith. Um, yeah, North Fort Smith. North, North Fort Smith. What, what was this article about? Well, this is, um, this is probably going to be one of those stories that kind of keeps on giving, maybe even through to November. But Max Avery... Um, who now has he was born Max Rodriguez and he legally changed his name to Maximus Tyrannus Avery. I don't know why, but that's an interesting name change. But uh, he's had some financial troubles. Um, so earlier, and it's pretty complicated, I'm just going to cut to the chase here. He essentially owes the United Federal Credit Union and First National Bank of Fort Smith. Um, quite a bit of money, most of it to United Federal Credit Union. So he was hit with a judgment in March to pay around, um, well, a little, little over eight, actually close to $900,000 in principal interest and other fees to those two banks. Um, now, uh, Avery contends um, that he had some employees in his bolding construction business that embezzled money and, and ran up credit card debt on him, and he's just had to resolve those issues. But none of that uh, is mentioned in any, any of these court documents. Uh, and he, Max Avery, claims through his attorney that he's working with both those bank operations to um, um, negotiate negotiate that out, settle out a pay, settle out on another payment. He says he's paid First National Bank $10,000. We plan on pursuing this just to see what um, the banks say. I've covered a lot of these type cases for probably two, three decades, more than I probably want to admit. Usually when the when it gets to a court order like this, the banks have given up. The banks have, have said we're tired of trying to reach a solution. Um, so... Um, We'll see if 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 the banks give Mr. Avery more time to settle this out. The other part of this story, and I should mention, I should give credit to Matthew Campbell. He's an attorney in Little Rock, and he's kind of a blogger. 
he keeps up with politicians around the state. He's the one that first broke uh, the story about Mr. Avery's financial issues and a March 2017 domestic disturbance issue on which Avery was arrested. He was arrested for uh, assaulting someone. He was arrested for pointing a gun at two people, um, and he was charged. He pled guilty, served a three-year probation. After that probation, because of a of a state law, he was the, the charges. The whole thing was allowed to be kind of dropped, expunged, as if it never happened. But the documents are still there. Now, Avery's version of the story com- is completely different from the police report and from the report given by um, the two people that he um, was in conflict with. Avery says that he didn't point a handgun at anyone. He says he was there to help his former girlfriend, her name is Sarah, um, that he, every claims that Sarah was being abused by her then boyfriend. But Sarah's statement to the police is completely different. In fact, she says that it was Max who was the one that abused her in the past. And she was worried about Max abusing her again on that night. So it's going to be interesting how this plays out. Um, he faces a uh, Democrat, Jay Richardson, who's a, the state representative now, the incumbent uh, representing that part of Fort Smith. But um, Kyle, it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, Max is running as a Republican and um, as conservative as this region has become. And as much as, you know, Republicans, it seems um, uh, the strength of that party, um, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't surprise me if he, even with all these financial problems, the domestic disturbance problem, still carries the day in November. I guess we will find out, won't we? It's a coming. It's a coming. November is. You can read about all of this and so much more at talkbusiness.net. We live in interesting times. Michael Tilley, thank you so much for your time. Uh, You're welcome, sir. KUAF is supported by Butterfield Trail Village, a premier northwest Arkansas retirement community catering to active lifestyles and resident well-being. Offering a variety of amenities, including apartments, cottages, and village home living options. Information at butterfieldtrailvillage.org. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. This is Ozarks at Large for Friday, the first day of July, 2022. I'm Kyle Kellams. Teaching isn't a static profession. Subjects change and students change. Classrooms change. This past spring, a pair of University of Arkansas educators shared their experiences with inclusive teaching designed to support all students, bringing diversity, equity, and inclusion into the classroom. Recently, Rogelio Garcia Contreras, faculty member in the Department of Strategy, Entrepreneurship, and Venture Innovation at the U of A, and director of the Social Innovation Initiative, and Jackie Mosley, professor of Human Development and Family Sciences at the U of A, came to the Carver Center for Public Radio to talk with Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith and me about bringing inclusion further into the classroom. And for me, it was really an interesting challenge because I never thought of my classes really being a vehicle for incorporating diversity and inclusion topics. But when I when I was uh, talking about the presentation with Carol, she pointed out some aspects that I use in the class that made me think, oh, yeah, maybe, you know, like, and, and, and it's not that I never thought purposefully about it because to me, innovation, you know, I... I, I, I 
lead classes on social innovation, social entrepreneurship. And for me, innovation is a preamble to entrepreneurship, but a condition for innovation is diversity. And diversity of perspective, diversity of thought is key for that innovation. So I try to foster that, although I never thought that, you know, this was enough to present in front of <laughs> other faculty members the, the work that I do. But it was an interesting way of approaching uh, the class and approaching what I do, thinking of that specifically, and, and that was an, a really good experience for me. Jackie, how did your experience compare? Um, similar. Uh, I didn't see myself as like someone to to talk with over the Zoom. Rohilio and I both felt that way. And what's, it's funny, when Carol asked me, I thought immediately of Rohilio and all the experiences that students have, right? But for me, I guess I was really excited. I, I feel like my courses are very much related to diversity, equity, inclusion. You know, they're focused on multicultural families, cultural competence. We talk a lot about anti-racism. What I really wanted to share in my presentation that I think is a little bit unique for a lot of um, teachers who teach these types of courses is the data to show that what we're doing in the classroom is working because I pre and post assess everything. So I, I assess them week one, assess week 16 and see have they gained or grown in their cultural competence related to diversity, equity, inclusion. And my courses have shown that over time. And so I was really excited to get that data out there because I, I nerd out, you know, and I was like, okay, now some people are going to see my data. And they seemed excited about it. And even Rohilia was like, that's of really course. cool. And I was like, you could do that so easily to your class, right? Is just collect some data. So, Jackie, yeah, I'm curious. What's, what sort of pre-assessment, what goes into the, the pre and post assessment? So basic demographics, who they are and everything. And then um, a ethnic identity scale, like do they know who they are, basically. A cultural competence assessment scale. Um, an anti-racism scale, like what kind of behaviors? Are they reading books? Are they watching documentaries? Are they listening to podcasts? Are they actually, do they believe they're anti-racist? Like lots of different questions like that. Um, and then I utilize the intercultural development inventory, which is an assessment that costs money. And so I have my seniors do that. And so I've done that over time for the last four or five years. And it is the best assessment out there. And it actually helps them understand where they are week one, and then we set goals for the semester. And then at week 16, they read about, you know, where do they think they are? And then we actually assess again to see if they've grown. And it's like really meaningful because it's not just me telling them. It's like they're, it's almost like a personality assessment or something, like learning about yourself, but it actually assesses growth and in, in, that's related to my curriculum. You both mentioned that what you do, what you did before you were asked to do this, diversity was part of it. But then you were asked to specifically think about it. And I wonder if that has at all altered how you think about it or how you approach. Did it make you think of something that maybe you hadn't intentionally thought of before? Well, Jackie's presentation definitely gave me food for thought and ways in which I can incorporate aspects of the assessment that she makes in her class in my, to, to incorporate that in my class. And Because uh, to some extent, many of the issues that we talk about in the class are issues that are intrinsically related to inequality and access to opportunity, and this is uh, related directly with uh, issues of diversity, equity, inclusion. So in a way, making an assessment of these concepts, uh, these ideas uh, for to the students that are going to be working on these issues, is, I think is key, and is a practice that I was not uh, doing 
uh, until I heard what Jackie was doing. I said, oh, well, maybe I can incorporate this. <laughs> the biggest thing for me is I think about diversity, equity, inclusion with my class all the time. It's really focused around that and cultural competence and this framework. But when I was giving the presentation, oftentimes I'm trying to think of how can my course relate to others? You know, someone who teaches math or STEM or English or art that you can implement diversity, equity, inclusion into every course I would argue, but you have to sometimes be creative, right? It To me, it's very natural because that's what the course is about. But for like Rogelio, your course isn't called like diversity, equity, inclusion, but you implement those those elements. And so that's, I think, what I'm always challenging myself is to try to think about someone's class that is totally different from mine and how I could help them come up with ideas. And, and, and if I may, this is one of the most challenging things, I think, because when I was invited to participate in this I thought, well, maybe in a way my class is related, but what about, you know, chemistry, right? <laughs> or, you know, like that is far more difficult to draw a connection. Uh, but but Jackie has uh, such a system that I, I think, um, you know, is, uh, mm. pertains to, to many classes. Yeah. Jackie, I'm curious about the system. So did you, was this already a department requirement before um, the assessment was, or, you know, where did this idea to implement the assessment come from? So I've been teaching the course for many years. It was one that when I got here back in 2010, there was no diversity course. And my, my area is human development and family sciences, and there was no multicultural families course, even though that is very common in all types of fields across the U.S. where I got my um, education. So they're like, okay, we'll cr find a syllabus, create a course. Sure, I asked friends. And, and so then we created the course thinking we'd hire someone to teach the course. This was way outside my expertise. And they said, well, we're not going to hire anyone, but you're interested, so you teach it. And it was learning with my students. And I don't think I did a very good job because I wasn't – that was not my expertise, learning about – you know, talking about multicultural families, you know, black families, Latinx families, et cetera. So um, – I was learning with them, and then I came across this intercultural development inventory. Um, there's a training that's that's required for anyone to give out the assessment. So I did the three-day training, and it was, like, the best thing that ever happened to me because it helped me understand where I was and where I needed to, to grow, um, but it helped me understand that I could use data in my course to make it a little bit stronger. And I realized I wasn't doing a very good job when I first put the, the assessment in my course. I found my students were actually going backwards. <laughs> oh. They were not growing um, like I was hoping. And so I really had to push myself to think, what am I missing? And I used their framework. And then I also attended the very first high impact practices conference on campus through Deb Korth and the Multicultural Center that's happening again this summer. And again, it helped me see that like service learning, study abroad, research, diversity, equity, inclusion, all these different things that are really impactful should be implemented in your teaching. And again, you just don't know what you don't know. As a faculty, I had no idea. And so, but me, I was excited because I could utilize data. I, I'm kind of a research nerd. I like to look at the research. So I started using that assessment every semester and challenging myself, thinking about what Am I not doing well? And so every year, and that's what the presentation showed, it's gotten better and better. And so um, I just keep setting more goals for my students and myself. I first came to the university as a freshman 41 years ago. It was a different place. It was almost, it was predominantly white. And I came from a small town in Arkansas that was homogenous, white, Protestant. And so most of my classes here at the university were, if not exclusively, 
heavily majority white. And I'm wondering, can you find diversity is easier to talk about, easier to translate when the class itself is diverse and not predominantly homogenous? Uh, well, uh, I guess I bring diversity to the class in, <laughs> in, in a yeah, way, right? right? right. Um, and these uh, sometimes have had its uh, you know, challenges if, 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 because I guess it depends on the class that you're teaching, the focus that you provide. But um, one thing that I encounter, at least among my, uh, my students, is that uh, they, are, they, are, they don't run away from these topics. They are eager to touch on these topics. They, they, are, they want to be exposed to these topics. That, I notice, now not all of them react to these in the in the same way, and as as it is expected, no, many other topics is the same case. But um, for the most part, I think the the students, the, uh, the co my colleagues, the staff are everybody is open to these. Uh, at least in my experience, yeah. I was going to say, um, most of my students do identify as white female. They want to work with children and families, so that demographic is there. So when I get the one male, that's exciting. Um, I really think I you present the material based on the demographics, even when I do trainings on cultural competence. If you have a really primarily white group, you and as a white woman, I can definitely um, relate to them and what they've gone through and what they're thinking and, and how it's it's difficult to talk to because it's not like we've ever taken courses on cultural competency or DEI, nor are there any classes in higher education. They take one, if any. Um, but when you have a diverse group, I think what sometimes happens is if you ask about, you know, black experiences, people may tend to look at the one black student in the class, right? As an instructor, you need to know that you don't put them out and ask them about their experiences. It's only if they volunteer that. So how I circumvent that is I bring in guest speakers a lot. As a white woman, I'm not an expert on black families. I'm not an expert on Latino women's experiences, right? So I bring in experts, people who um, identify as that community, but also just have experiences. And so lots of guest speakers. So that way I don't feel like I'm in some ways whitewashing someone's experience. Um, I can bring in a little bit of knowledge, but very little. So... I think a common theme throughout these answers is the idea of exposure, right? And I'm curious, Rogelio, you've traveled to a multitude of places, Haiti, Bolivia, Malawi, to name a very few. What have you seen in your travels and not just travels, but also exposure, different, you know, workshops, learning practices that made you say, wow, I'm bringing that back with me? Well, I think the... Just the experience of traveling open horizons for ourselves, that, you know, that in, in ways uh, that we don't expect, right? So uh, there are many aspects that I have thought of bringing back and or you know carry with me for forever and try to communicate these to to my students or or you know, people I interact with. I don't know if I am always successful at that, but I think that those experiences have somehow, even if uh, unconsciously, permeate message and uh, always bring um, ideas or innovations that I that I try to implement in the classroom that somehow have to do with that right to me for instance one key aspects in the work that I do key aspect in the work that I do is related to how we are able to optimize the resources available to tackle a challenge that is affecting our community and in many of the uh, 
uh, travels that I, that I have had, uh, the experiences that I have encountered around the world is that in many of these places, uh, despite the lack of infrastructure or, or despite the lack of resources, they have managed to, to somehow tackle the issue. So what is that they are doing right that we are not somehow with this abundance of resources and abundance of infrastructure, you know, much better infrastructure. So that to me is something that has definitely shaped the work that I, that I do. And, and then also, you know, the, the very basic, perhaps even commonplace of understanding, you know, we, we are all here in the same planet, the same, it's the same boat. We all want the same things. And, uh, Access to opportunity really mean a lot. And uh, access to education, you know, uh, we belong to the minority in this world that have had access to college education, right? According to the United Nations, about 7% of the world population, which in a world of 7.5 billion people is around, you know, 500 million people that have had access to college education. So when you think about it, and, and, and you know, you see the experiences of others that, due to the lack of opportunity and lack of um, resources, they have not had access to these, but they have managed to do so much, right? You can imagine how, how much they could have done had they uh, had this opportunity. So fostering education, fostering opportunities to access education has become um, a, you know, something that, that I struggle for. I, like, I, I, I want to contribute to to those uh, opportunities. So, yeah, in a way, my travels have permeated that. Rogelio Garcia Contreras is a faculty member in the Department of Strategy, Entrepreneurship, and Venture Innovation at the University of Arkansas. And Jackie Mosley is Professor of Human Development and Family Sciences at the U of A. Our conversation with Rachel Sanchez-Smith and me took place in the Furman Garner Performance Studio. This is Ozarks at Large. Walmart Amp proudly presents a Fireworks Spectacular Monday, July 4th. This family-friendly experience features patriotic music by the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas with a grand finale fireworks display. Gates open at 6 p.m., concert at 7.30, and fireworks begin at 9.15. AmpTickets.com for more information. This is Ozarks at Large. It is my privilege and my honor to be on the phone with Becca Martin-Brown, who is the Features Editor of the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. She's in Bella Vista. I'm in the Carver Center for Public Radio. We're both going to talk about what to do this weekend and beyond. Oh, you are full of it today, Kyle. Today. Today. <laughs> full of it. Okay. All right. You are full of it, Kyle. Let's take the today off of it. Okay. I am excited to talk about the next show at Theater Squared. Flex. Flex. Because it's about my favorite, one of my favorite things. It's a play. It's theater about basketball. I, I just want to hold you here for a second. The last play we talked about with them, well, one of the last ones we talked about with them was about something you like, professional wrestling. This is about basketball. I'm telling you, folks, next year, T2 is going to have something about yard sales. So just stay tuned. <laughs> or, or funnel cakes. Well, you could put that into the uh, the yard sale, perhaps. Into the yard yeah. sale, yeah. I got to interview Candace Jones, who is the playwright, for a profile in the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. And she is so interesting. Imagine growing up, I'm probably going to butcher the name of it, in Dermot, Arkansas. Right. I think that's how it's pronounced, yes. 
Population 2300. And the big thing was playing high school basketball. Mm-hmm. The boys were winning. The girls were, or the other way around, and the girls were in a rebuilding year. Her brother, who's 15 months older than she is, says he taught her to play basketball. And that's his story, and he's sticking to it. (laughs) But it was the thing. She got dragged off to practice with her older brothers and sisters. So, of course, she was going to play. They had a hoop out back. And it turned into, A, her ticket out of Dermot, and B, into a setting for a play where she talks about being young women and the crises of being a young woman and the joy and the pain of living in a small town and poverty and teenage pregnancy. And it sounds really serious. But it's not. But it is. Right. Well, it's real life. There's a, it's real life. There's a lot to unpack and think about. But she is so super cool, and she's made such a name for herself coming out of a little bitty town in Arkansas that it's worth going to see the play to support that. The play was workshopped at Theater Squared last year. And now it's been invited back in a more or less finished version to be performed alongside this year's Arkansas New Play Festival. And uh, KUAF's community engagement manager, Jasper Logan, went to a, a sort of tech rehearsal this week, and he raved about it. And the set is a basketball court. How could the world be any more perfect? <laughs> Right. How? How could it be any more perfect? So it opens this weekend, and there's only 20 performances. So don't fiddle around. Don't dribble around. Go see the play if you want to see it. I think you'll enjoy it, and it's a great way to support local talent. Absolutely. It is, of course, the 4th of July weekend. It is, yes. And so I am compelled by the contract I signed when I became a journalist to tell you every place you can go see fireworks. Right. Now, I think, you know, you and I have different opinions on certain things. I think we're kind of on the same page about fireworks. I let other people do them. them, Please don't blow them up in my neighborhood. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that. And there's there is. You live within five minutes of fireworks, of a professional fireworks display, pretty much anywhere in northwest Arkansas in the River Valley. And my dog, Daisy, would appreciate it if you didn't set them off on our street, but I digress. And all four of my dogs would appreciate it if you don't set them off in Bella Vista. So four dogs is a lot of unhappy dogs. Bella Vista, the community band, will perform a free concert at 7 o'clock Monday evening at Blowing Springs Park in celebration of Independence Day. They'll have a food truck on site. In Bentonville, an evening at Orchards Park kicks off at 7 o'clock on Monday with live music, 
food trucks and then fireworks at 930. Fort Smith has a 4th of July celebration starting at 5 o'clock Monday in Harry E. Kelly Riverfront Park with live music and then fireworks at 930. Gentry has the Freedom Festival starting at noon on Monday and ending after a fireworks display at dusk. They have a car show, pageants, children's games, live music, and fireworks. And Freedom Don't Fest- bring your pets to the park. You're right. Freedom Fest has been going on for a while, too, right? Oh, yeah. Like decades. Heisel has fireworks at First Baptist Church. Oh, but that one is on Sunday, July 3rd. In Rogers, there's the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas Fireworks Spectacular with a performance by Sona and then fireworks at the Arkansas Music Pavilion. And that starts at 7.30 on Monday. Tickets start at $3. How can you beat that? There's fireworks and baptism at the crosses at Cross Church in Rogers at 5 o'clock on July 3rd. They'll have food trucks, bring your lawn chairs, fireworks at dusk, fireworks the 4th of July at the Asylum Springs Municipal Airport with gates opening at 6 o'clock. Fireworks after the ball game at Arvis Ballpark on the 4th of July. Fireworks in Van Buren at the Field of Dreams Sports Complex on the 4th of July. Fireworks in Farmington on the 4th of July. Fireworks in Prairie Grove on the 4th of July. <laughs> you're right. If you, li- if you live in our listening area, you're close to something. And the big fireworks display in Little Rock that they always have over the bridge is the 4th of July. You can find all this in the Sunday WhatsApp. Yeah. So you don't have to remember it. You did not have to take notes. But I am compelled through my my contract as a journalist to tell you every year where the fireworks are. And by the way, you mentioned the Northwest Arkansas Naturals. Saturday night, Bobby Witt Jr. bobblehead night, by the way. Good to know. Yeah, yeah. Love bobbleheads. I need bobbleheads. So also this weekend, Opera in the Ozarks is going on in Eureka Springs. Nothing blows up there. (laughs) Tonight is A Little Night Music, the Stephen Sondheim musical. Saturday night is La Rondonay. And Sunday afternoon is A Little Night Music. So there's that going on. There's, of course, Flex at Theater Squared and Miss You Like Hell, which has been extended at Theater Squared until the 17th. There's a new exhibit called We the People, the Radical Notion of Democracy, opening at Crystal Bridges. Right. And the Sunday Mountain Street stage at the Fayetteville Public Library is Jude Brothers at 2 o'clock. And I will once again encourage you to go because it will be the best no money you ever spent. I think they should trademark that. The best no money you ever spent. They can steal it. I'm okay with that. And Sunday we'll have stories about a new exhibit about the American West at Crystal Bridges, which is really interesting because they're asking people to look beyond the paintings and the pictures that were made for the folks back east of the romantic American West. Right. And it's artworks from the Gilcrease Museum in Tulsa, which is closed for a couple of years to build a new building. Right. Oh, it's good that that so art can still be seen. Terrible. 
yeah, it got to come and visit us. And then next week, we'll also have a story about the new Miss Arkansas, who is from Harrison and is was Miss Dogwood before she won the state title. Her name is Ebony Mitchell, and she's a sweetheart, and you'll love that, too. And next week, you and I will talk again, won't we? Oh, my gosh. We have to keep doing this. We can't seem to stop. <laughs> That's right. Becca Martin-Brown is the Features Editor at the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Becca, always appreciate your time. Thank you. When Britain turned control of Hong Kong over to China in 1997, children born that year were told they'd be the leaders of tomorrow. 25 years later, some of them are disillusioned. We know that hope is important, but at the same time, it could be very, it could be toxic. That conversation, plus the latest news, Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Weekend edition, tomorrow morning from 7 to 9 on KUAF 91.3 and on your smart speaker when you ask it to please play KUAF. This is Ozarks at Large. The name of the whole health school of medicine planned in Bentonville has changed. It's now the Alice L. Walton School of Medicine. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports on the name change announced yesterday, as well as the medical school's latest developments. The name change from the Whole Health School of Medicine and Health Sciences to the Alice L. Walton School of Medicine to be constructed in Bentonville reflects a commitment made in March 2021 by the Walmart heiress, philanthropist, and founder. Walter Harris serves as chief operating officer for the Art and Wellness Enterprise, which funds and operates major nonprofit institutions established by Alice Walton. Having a real-life name associated with the School of Medicine plugs into her, her view on physical, mental, and emotional, and spiritual health. So I believe her epiphany came in that she has plugged into her own lived experiences, which, which in my mind drives us in a really good way of, of, of encouraging future doctors uh, to subscribe to something that's a little bit different, but wholesome at the same time. So I think she really, her lived experiences has driven her to this, this change in name. The school's four-year medical degree program will integrate conventional allopathic medicine with holistic medical principles and self-care practices. Walton, with this school, aims to exemplify, empower, and equip physicians to help patients to take charge of their physical, mental, and spiritual health and well-being to live full and meaningful lives. Currently seeking programmatic and institutional accreditation this year by the Liaison Committee on Medical Education under the U.S. Department of Education, Walton and her team are cultivating key partnerships with state medical and educational institutions, including Washington Regional Medical Center, UAMS and federally qualified health centers, for example, Community Clinic here in Northwest Arkansas, and most recently, Cleveland Clinic. Cleveland Clinic is a highly ranked nonprofit multi-specialty academic medical center based in Ohio that integrates clinical and hospital care with research and education, with satellite locations in Florida, Nevada, Toronto, London, and Abu Dhabi, United Arab Emirates, Cleveland clinics have yielded significant advancements in diagnosis and treatment of complex medical conditions. And then you include a school of medicine in that. You have what we consider a fully integrated health system that meets end-to-end needs. It changes the way healthcare is taught. It changes the way healthcare is delivered. And, and in addition to that, the school of medicine 
has doctors, you know, future clinicians coming through it, that we're training them in a way to become the patient in their mind so that they not only learn to become a great clinician, but they understand the perspective of a patient. So when they go out into the world, they, they are more well-rounded docs. So the Cleveland Clinic model, along with Washington Regional, gives us, with the School of Medicine, a fully integrated health system where we can provide end-to-end -end health services, as well as provide a new way of teaching medical doctors to become patient-centered uh, instead of having separate entities. So I think that their relationships are very important for that well-rounded doc that we're trying to produce in the future. Equity, diversity, and inclusion, according to a press release, are high priority for the planned Alice Walton School of Medicine. The Arkansas-based firm Polk Stanley Wilcox are lead architects for the 154,000-square-foot school to be located east of Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville. The four-level facility will feature learning halls, small group meeting rooms, a library, clinical teaching spaces, administrative offices, a student lounge, theater, recreation and wellness areas, and more. Yeah, our timeline is to have ground to be broken uh, spring of 2023 with an anticipated planned date of having our first student once we have passed LCM accreditation approval is to have our first students enter the building in 2025, fall of 2025. The surrounding landscape design will accommodate pedestrian and bike trail networks. Stewardship, a regional ecology, will be illustrated with woodland meditation, foraging, and native gardens, as well as a constructed wetland. Outdoor classrooms will be built, as will urban farming plots, and a rooftop terrace that connects to balconies, an amphitheater, and cafe for students, faculty, staff, and visitors to enjoy. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. This is Ozarks at Large with me. Via Zoom is Courtney Lanning. Courtney, welcome back to the show. Kyle, thanks for having me. All right, last week you said you hoped to review a new movie called uh, Princess, right? The Princess. The Princess, sorry, The Princess. And that's what we're going to talk about? That is exactly what we're going to talk about. All right, this, I have to admit, when you first mentioned this last week, I conjured up sort of like a Disney film, right? Because they're famous for their princesses like Cinderella and Jasmine. Sure. And, you know, this movie is essentially part Disney movie, but it's also um, a little more mature than you would expect uh, because Disney does seem to have the market cornered on princess stories, like you said. This movie is essentially one part Brave, which is a Disney film about a Scottish princess that doesn't want to be a princess. And also Disenchantment, which for people who don't know, is a dark fantasy comedy series created by Matt Groenig, who did The Simpsons and Futurama. Right. All right. And it's it's hilarious. And it's intricate, yes. this this cartoon. And it's and it's very well, if you've seen Futurama or The Simpsons, you have an idea. It's it's, you know, some some pretty dark humor at times. Of course. And, you know, that's exactly what this movie is. This is about a princess that goes on a killing spree to save her family from invading forces. And, and I loved it. <laughs> and it's live action, right? It is, yes. This is a, a live action movie that's coming to Hulu today. Um, it's, it's a delightfully dark fantasy film. Um, it keeps the story really tight. And it doesn't waste any time getting the ball rolling. And Joey King, who plays the princess looks great while she's slaying her enemies. So would I be wrong to say this also seems to have a little bit of, oh, those sort of 
uh, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies or Abraham Lincoln Vampire Killer feels like you're taking a sort of trope and reimagining it? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, you know, your your typical princess story, this is not, you know. Um, the story is, is very simple. Uh, princess doesn't want to marry uh, a jerk mm-hmm. from another kingdom that her father had tried to force her into. She wants to be a knight. They drug her. She wakes up in a tower. Her family's castle is being invaded by the guy she refused to marry. Her family's captured. Uh, and she's in handcuffs. And from there, she just has to work her way down the tower, killing people to rescue her family. It's it's pretty pretty violent and a little gory at times. Not not too much for you, okay. but you know, it's it's a mature film. All right, uh, you said it's a simple plot. So, and you just described it. So, we're getting from point A to point B. Exactly. Uh, the princess doesn't even get a name. She's just the princess, uh, and it. It definitely, this movie commits to style over substance. But, you know, I'm fine with that. When most people think of dark fantasy, they're probably thinking of Game of Thrones, where you have to remember a thousand different houses and different countries. And and this is just a film about a princess who wants to be a knight and has to kill a lot of people to rescue her family and her castle. It's, I'm betting it clocks in at under two hours. Oh, definitely. It sticks as close to 90 minutes as you possibly can. All right. So if this is the sort of diversion you want, it sounds like it checks all the boxes. It does. And like I said, available on Hulu today. And I would also think, be aware, just don't make a mistake about the title like I did. This might not be what you want to sit down with the niece, nephew, or grandkids or young children. Right. You know, when I say that this story is uh, part disenchantment, I mean, this is a princess who, A, kills a lot of bad guys, B, does a lot of drinking, and C, looks good while doing all of it. (laughs) Right. Uh, So that's on Hulu today. What's coming to theaters this week? So I figure the big movie coming to theaters this week is Minions Rise of Gru. I'm sure the kids will love it. I'm sure the grandparents will love that they get more clip art to share on Facebook. So it should be a win-win for both of them. And what do you think we'll talk about next week? Next week, I'll be reviewing a new animated film coming to Netflix called The Sea Beast. The Sea Beast? Yes. It's from the same director who made Moana. Oh, okay. Uh, You can see The Princess right now on Hulu. You can read the full review from Courtney in today's uh, Arkansas Democrat Gazette. We talk almost every Friday about new films. Courtney, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me, Kyle. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents We the People, the Radical Notion of Democracy, featuring the nation's founding documents in conversation with American art, including a rare original print of the U.S. Constitution, opening July 2nd. Free tickets at crystalbridges.org. Gear Gaming in Fayetteville is hosting a Pokemon Day tomorrow. Ozarks at Large's Kristen Kite spoke with Taylor McKinney, who says any and all gamers are welcome. So we are trying to gear it for all age ranges of kids, um, and if they are just novice to Pokemon, to expert trading card game players, uh, we'll have stations set up for the more expert game players to play, but also beginners will have decks available for them to practice and just get familiar with the cards. Cost-wise, if you are five years or less, it is $5, and if you are six years and up, it's $10 for admission.
And then can Pokemon fans just drop in or do they have to have tickets in advance? No tickets in advance. Um, actually, it is just show up at noon, get your tickets then and have fun. We'll have everything set up indoors. There's going to be several different areas for the kids to, uh, for example, go to a photo booth. We'll have some tickets. We'll have a Pokemon Center with snacks. And then, of course, the trading card game area, uh, which is probably my favorite thing. I love that. Taylor, there's going to be a lot of activities there. Give me an idea of what kind of activities we're doing. So we will have stations set up for the Pokemon trading card game. We will also have a Poke Center so that guests can come get snacks from the Poke Center. I will have a photo booth. We'll have TVs playing with the show in the background. We'll have a paint your own Pokeball event. And we'll have small face tattoos of the different Pokemon. Um, and then the last thing would just be the crayons and activity sheets that are straight from the Pokemon website for our more younger audience but guests of all ages are invited to play each different event or, or craft or activity. Will this end up being an annual event? Yes, I would love to see this as an annual event. Uh, this is our very first year doing this, so we're going to be making notes and taking names of suggestions and things that we can do to improve it for next year, but I think we already have a pretty good program set up for Saturday. I'm excited to see everybody there. I love Pokemon myself, and we are just going to have the best environment for everybody that loves Pokemon or that wants to learn about Pokemon. Okay, Taylor, I'm sure people will have a lot of questions for you. Where can they contact you best? That's an excellent question. Uh, feel free to call the Gear Gaming Store at 479-276-8110. Check out our Facebook page, Gear Gaming, um, and that, that would be the best, best places to reach us. Thank you, Taylor. Thank you. Ozarks at Large's Kristen Kite spoke with Taylor McKinney this week at the Carver Center for Public Radio. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and all along Neokoska Creek. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors today included Rachel Sanchez-Smith, Kristen Kite, Michael Tilly, Becca Martin-Brown, and Courtney Lanning. Matthew Moore produced our show and reminded me it's pronounced Pokemon. Join us Sunday morning at 9 for a holiday weekend version of the program. Timothy Dennis will share some of our favorite musical performance that have been conducted for KUAF in the first half of 2022. That's Sunday morning at 9 on KUAF. Please, please, please be safe this weekend. Get rest if you can. From Studio 120 at the Carver Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville, I'm Kyle Kellums. Talk again soon.